Have you ever heard the myth of Sisyphus? Is that the story of a person pushing a rock up a hill only for it to roll to the bottom again? Yes, but you're leaving out a critical detail. He's happy about it. Happy about it? How can one be content with such a pointless task? Don't we do it every day? That's absurd. Exactly. The absurd. This week. Philosophers. Philosophers. All right, David, what are we talking about today? I wanted to talk a bit about absurdism, uh, which is something that I've known about for a while and kind of sort of identify with myself, but I I don't usually call myself an absurdist when people ask. Um, I, I kind of associate a, uh, a certain type of personality with, with actually identifying yourself as an absurdist um, that I don't necessarily fall into, but um, and, uh, I figured it was, uh, about time we actually talked about some philosophy on our philosophy show. Okay. So let's begin by talking a little bit about what absurdism is, like technically, uh-huh. why you may or may not align yourself with that position, but then also maybe the definition that a lot of people might use that you don't agree with and how they're different. Okay. Um, so we will begin with our, our favorite source, Wikipedia, which is always a good source. TM. <laughs> Never any bad uh, takes on Wikipedia. Yes, Wikipedia is the best source. Wikipedia said so. <laughs> and it is the ultimate source. That said, it is decent for these type of topics. So. True. True. So I will read the opening paragraph, which I think does a pretty good job of introducing the topic. Absurdism is the philosophical theory that life in general is absurd. This implies that the world lacks meaning or a higher purpose and is not fully intelligible by reason. However, the term absurd also has a more specific sense in the context of absurdism. It refers to a conflict or discrepancy between two things, but there are several disagreements about their exact nature. These disagreements have uh, various consequences for whether absurdism is true and for the arguments cited in favor and against it. Popular accounts characterize the conflict as a collision between rational man and, ir and an irrational universe, between intention and outcome, or between subjective assessment and objective worth. An important aspect of absurdism is its claim that the world as a whole is absurd. It differs in this regard from the uncontroversial and less global thesis that some particular situations, persons, or phases in life are absurd. Okay, so where do you fall, I guess, on that split to start? Uh, yes, I think upon rational consideration... Nothing really makes sense. Okay. Nothing. Uh, okay. And by nothing makes sense, I don't mean that we cannot make any sense of anything. But like in a philosophical sense. Okay. Perhaps it's better to provide an example. Sure. Um, think about the the often asked question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Okay. Why do we care about the answer to this question? I don't care about the answer to that question. Okay. Well, some people I'm sure do. Many people do. Okay. Um and it is a it's a it's a question which eludes an answer because we probably literally cannot can never know. Hmm. Go ahead. I have an issue with that, but go ahead and finish first before I cut you off. Well, it's it's this like we have we have this rational idea in our head that like things have to have a cause. Oh, okay. Uh and then but we we can't find the cause of all the things. Okay. You know, so we're trying to reconcile this logical thing that we've come up with things have to have a cause with yeah but we can't find one and like it and it also we we have it, it seems intuitive to us that because everything has a cause and there are things then you know why hmm, i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of fumbling this as you can tell that's okay but, 
basically like we we have we have this assumption that things would have been easier as if that means something for there to be nothing than than something um and so we we find it difficult to reconcile with reason why there is anything that maybe is kind of an extreme example yeah probably of, you know but it's it's this kind of thing where we have we have these psychological itches that we want to scratch and the universe just keeps preventing us from doing it sure well let's just take the the question like why is there something and not nothing because that's an interesting question in general so my first bone to pick is you're asking why Mm -hmm. that's an issue i think when you're looking at you know if you i'm just gonna say nature in general but like if you look at that on the universal scale, why is a question that's only asked by people, you know? Um, now, the reasons as to why or the causes occur, right? But why is kind of irrelevant, you know? That that I think presupposes a framework in which everything has to have a reason to exist. You know what I mean? Or Or a cause of some kind. Whereas I don't know, just because something like that is fairly consistent, is the case. We, I think, as human beings, surmise that everything has a cause because we can measure that. We can... Right. Everywhere we look, we see causes and effects. Sure. But because we saw it enough places, I think that we think everything should have one. But there are plenty of things that we see all the time that don't necessarily follow the rules. Like, you you could look at, like, problems in physics, Right. We, we know that some we named a phenomena like gravity, right? Mm-hmm. It, it exists. We know that it happens. We can't really, we, we have reasons as to why it might happen that are pretty predictable. Like if you were to do experiments based on the logical trains of thought that justify the reasons, you can repeat them. But there are also ways in which it breaks other scientific frameworks that essentially say that it shouldn't exist like like gravity kind of breaks quantum mechanics in some ways like it doesn't make sense right we haven't been able to make sense of it yet sure so i don't know i I think that there is something to the idea in general of absurdism where it's we're rational entities living in an irrational universe right but i think that also is pretty commonsensical when you think about it because we're thinking things and you have to be a thinking thing for rationality to make sense but you don't need to be thinking in order for there to be order you you know what i mean um i think a lot of this is an attempt for us to us to define the order of the structures of the universe in which we live like that's why we make well yes we're very egocentric in that way yeah um yeah like we also feel like we are the most important things Yet we live in a universe that constantly reminds us how insignificant we are. Sure. I mean, not to get too nihilist or existentialist about it, but if everything becomes insignificant at a certain scale. Right. Even, you know, if you were to say that everything outside the universe is nothing, you know, does that make sense as a statement? No. No what that everything outside the universe is nothing yeah what's wrong with that statement everything is nothing yeah <laughs> everything that is outside the universe is nothing everything cannot be nothing right but that's because we have to have everything be a thing because that's like i think our most basic constructible object but you can make nothing a thing without ascribing any real properties to it Right, like we can, we can, I think, come up with the concept of nothingness, right? Like an empty space. Like we did this before, before we knew that there were things in space. We thought that it was a bunch of gaps between planets. There's just effectively nothing there, but there are things there. there there's also, it's also a thing, you know, um, before same thing with time, right? We, we, we thought that time was just a thing that we made up, but we knew that it kind of had to exist because but but it, was it a thing or was it not a thing 
then we had space time. I, I guess I'm kind of waffling on the same question because <laughs> I don't know. Because to me, it, it's it's hard to consider because I'm bound by my own rationality, right? Mm-hmm. I can only conceive of things rationally. Like even our irrational behaviors, if you really want to get down to the nitty gritty on it, I think can be rationalized, right? Because they are us doing things. Um, and and we love to have reasons for things. You know, this kind of reminds me of our split brain thing talk we've had before, I think. Yeah. Um, where uh, patients back in the day for, I think it was like seizure treatments. Yeah, um, epilepsy. Yeah. Epilepsy. Yeah, they would sever the... Uh, the corpus callosum. That's what it is. Like, I, I couldn't remember the second word. I was like, the corpus Christi and the brain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the corpus callosum. They would sever that, which is what keeps your left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of your brain able to communicate efficiently. Um they notice that certain behaviors would manifest where one part of your brain, which like your left hemisphere, which controls the right half of your body reasons. That's another fun thing. Yeah. Reasons. Um, and so your, your left brain, is it the left brain that can't talk? Left brain does talk. Okay. So the, the talking part of your brain, which is, that's another weird thing. So for things in the center of your face, <laughs> um, those go to the left brain, I guess, or at least that thing does the mouth. Yes. Um, if you're, if your right brain or your left arm to continue the confusion uh did not want to wear a certain shirt it would like push the shirt away out of the right hand and pick up a different shirt and your brain that can talk instead of acknowledging this just makes up reasons why this is normal and it's fine right this is a phenomenon yeah, we love to just make excuses for whatever it is that we're doing because yes that that's the the conclusion that we we ultimately reached was that most of the function of our brain is to come up with stories as to how we got where we are. Yeah. It's to satisfy our conscious thread. Like I think our desire to put a cause behind everything is because our consciousness is probably a lot less like a thread, but it's more or less like a block. It's more like a stack frame where you have to have a thing before a thing that's occurring. And then there's going to be something that comes after and they're linked together or linked list. Like there are things, there are moments mm-hmm conceptual moments that don't necessarily correlate to seconds you know um and i think the reason an example of that would be if you've ever been terrified or excited you know there's the saying that like oh the moment that lasted forever you know your that was a single moment in your mind that gets encapsulated but it has no respect to the time that's ticking forward outside of you right it doesn't matter what that is it's a single point in your consciousness Mm -hmm. And then as soon as you are ready for the next thing, there's a line being drawn out and points to the next moment that gets created. And that's, I think, a lot more realistic as to how our memory is made. It's, it's not like a tape where we're recording an analog constant signal. I think it's a lot more bucketed than that, um, which is interesting to think about. But it's the fact that we are just biologically driven to be this way that we have to have everything viewed in a cause and effect way, you know, um, especially being creatures under, you know, under time. I mean, time kind of is the ultimate measure of things before now and next, you mm-hmm. know, um, and, you know, also my rational brain's running away from the question by distracting us with a bunch of other stuff. So like, what was the original question? I guess <laughs> that we were trying to consider. Oh, how far back are we going? Uh, back to the original question, which is... Um, why is there something? Why is there something? I don't know why there is something. But I feel like the only satisfiable answer to me is as to why there is something is not an answer, but just a comment on that if there wasn't something, then there would it wouldn't matter. Right? Only something can consider something. Nothing can't consider anything. Right. But that's not answering your question. It's essentially just saying, don't care, you know, <laughs> doesn't matter. And who knows? Really? I don't think if there is nothing, then there are no reasons either. Right. Yeah. There's nothing to cause something. So the idea would be is as long as there has been something, there has been something which is tautological, but true. as most tautologies can be by their own internal definitions. 
but I think that this is a weird place where it kind of makes the same sense in physics too. Like we, there are laws of physics, right. That seem to be fairly universal everywhere you go or look in the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's only in the universe that those laws of physics apply. They don't apply outside the universe because of course they don't. It doesn't matter. You have to have a place to have a thing for which the laws of physics apply. Right. And anywhere it seems that you have a place, you have time, space-time specifically. And then once you have space-time, space-time itself is a thing. But there are also things on slash in space-time, depending on how you conceptualize it, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So I think the question is, I, I think the argument would be is, can you actually find me nothing or is nothing just an abstract? Nothing is an abstract. Yeah. So nothing's not real, whereas something is. Yeah. Nothing by definition cannot be real. Right. So I, I don't know. I think it's kind of a broken question as to why is there something and not nothing? It's like, could there ever be nothing? That's like saying, why is it three o'clock and not pie? It's like, that doesn't make any sense as a question. I think that's how I would equivalent that. It's an unanswerable question, essentially. Because you're comparing two things that, one that doesn't exist at all and can't exist. Well, I think now you're kind of picking on the phrasing, though. No, I mean... I could could just as well abbreviate it to, why does the universe exist? Sure. Or, why is there something? Hmm. Why is there anything? Why is there anything? And of course, I don't expect you to have the answer. Sure. I mean, if you could, you could probably win some Nobel Prizes, I'm sure. But like, right. I, I don't think that there, but no, even then, I think that the, the, my issue is the question is, is my issues with why still not everything has a reason. Right. And that's the absurdity of it. Yeah. Is that we want there to be reasons for everything and there isn't. Yeah. I would say, though, that most things do have a cause, though. Things that we care about, yeah. Sure, absolutely. Um, one, I would even go so far as to say that once you get past the why is there something part of it, um, once you're within the something box or once you're, once you're in the box of the universe exists. Right. Once we're operating within the rules that we're familiar with. Well, you say familiar with. I'm sure there are still... We, there are plenty of things that would not be familiar to us that we could conceptualize that probably do exist. Right. I'm talking about the rules, the rule set that we're familiar with. Oh yes. Yes. The rule set. Yes. Sorry. Even though that rule set changes all the time because it still doesn't absolutely satisfy everything. You know? Yes. Well, the actual rule set, the real rules, the actual rules that we have not perfectly figured out yet do not always align with our models of the rules. Right. But within the actual rules, mm-hmm. things apparently have causes. Yes. And that's why we think that everything needs a cause. Sure. One, and maybe to be fair, everything does have a cause. Everything does, except for all things. Right. Except for the bucket that all other things are in. It's weird. It's kind of like, it's kind of like describing mathematical sets with lines on a page. Does, is it everything inside the line or does the line count too? You know, like if I draw a circle and says, this is everything. What we're asking is, is the line something too? Mm-hmm. Cause if you don't think that the line is something that's fine, if you don't consider the bucket that encompasses everything as being a thing itself, then sure. You're fine. Right. Does the set of all sets contain itself? Yes. The answer is no. There you go. <laughs> See, we have mathematically proven that absurdity is just fine. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's that's absurdity now that I've had my dumb brain walked through it. Yes. Okay, cool. Now I understand. So what's the problem with absurdity? Oh, now, how does that relate to absurdism? I guess absurdism is like the philosophical acknowledgement ah. of the absurdity. Okay. So essentially saying that it's okay that it is like this? Well, there are several possible responses to it, much like how we've talked about with nihilism before. Um, But yes, usually the recommended response is to just... mm, It's normally phrased something like rebelling against the absurd. Um, Okay, so like the classic example 
since all since since we have pulled up the Wikipedia page, is Sisyphus. Mm-hmm. And the story of Sisyphus, I don't remember how he ends up this way in the mythology, but his fate in life is to push a boulder up a hill forever and never be able to get it to the top. Always, sometime before he makes it to the top of the hill, he will drop it and it will roll all the way back to the bottom and he has to start over again. Mm-hmm. But he is happy while doing so. And this was something created by people who were okay with uh, <laughs> wanting people to uh, believe in absurdism, I guess, or support well, it. Well, the concept of absurdism didn't exist whenever the story of Sisyphus True. was written. But Sisyphus is like the poster character of of absurdism because his life has no meaning. He will never achieve his goals. But he also doesn't care and does them anyway because he likes to. Hmm. Can we take a minute to talk about that in general? Okay, because I don't like that, to be honest. Mm. Because there's several things in here that are assumed that I don't think are safe to assume. In the abstract, of course. This is a story that's trying to send a message. That's one thing, but like... Okay, so you have a person and you have goals okay and fate all those concepts flying around at the same time Mm -hmm. so i generally disregard the notion of fate i think at least maybe with how people use the word it's like ah, well you know it is my fate to work these fields or in this case push this boulder it's like okay well, in Sisyphus's case, it literally is his fate because he's cursed by a god or something like that exactly. to have to do it. Yeah, exactly. But I would say that the reality is that, well, if you don't believe in such things like gods, then it's literally just you. You're choosing your fate to do this. Like, by accepting this as a fate, you are... It's the self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. So, I do like framing it in terms of goals. He has this goal which I think is a more realistic way to put it, because if you accept a goal, that's almost like accepting a fate. Except you're acknowledging that you're the one doing it, right? Not some right. external and entity. you might fail. Sure. Um, I think, you know, the parable to this in life, like, I, I think if you take the story as a parable for life, right? Because um, I don't believe in the original... In Is in the original story... Is his happiness like a part of the curse or is he just happy anyway? I don't think it's part of the curse, no. Okay. And does he know he's cursed to do this? Yes. Okay. So, okay. So now I'm, I think I understand this propaganda because that's what this is. Um, this is propaganda to keep people doing things they hate and being okay with it so that other people can benefit from it. I know it's a bit of maybe a reactionary take on it, but I absolutely think that's what this is because... This sounds a lot to me like the um, Protestant work ethic kind of. Even propaganda. though it's way older than that, it, it is sure. Yeah. But but it's this idea that look, see, here's this great person in this parable that they wouldn't use the word goal, fate is fated to this task. It is our duty to uphold this task, and there is something psychologically satisfying for us to fulfill our duty, right? In Maybe, some people. Okay, you could see it that way. I don't know. The way that I think of it is not not as like pro work ethic propaganda per se. Okay. I think it's like like anything, it's a story about what we already do anyway. Like especially think about this in the ancient world. Okay. Your life is very dull. You're just doing the same thing over and over to try to survive to the next day. Mm. What are you really trying to do? And you'll never finish doing it until you're dead. Avoid death. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. That's the thing. Is like You feel like you're working to do something, but then every time, whatever it was you were trying to get escapes you. And you're, you're back where you started at the mercy of the forces of nature, sure. trying not to die. Yeah, so like in this example, it would be like, let's go way, way back, you mm-hmm. know. You wake up, you begin your day, 
And the equivalent of pushing the boulder up the hill is things like finding food and right. avoiding danger and finding water. And once you've satisfied all of those things, you will live till the end of the day. Right. And then we do it all again and tomorrow. Then you go to sleep and the bolt that's the equivalent of the boulder, the boulder falling down. Up. Yes. Okay. Sure. I mean, I'm fine with that being an awesome. And to be fair, maybe I'm just a little angsty about propaganda right now, but like I do see how that can be but taking that concept, let's just get away from the Sisyphus example and just talk about that acknowledgement. Sure. Just acknowledging that that's what we do. We We live in a loop. We live in a loop. Um being content with just living in the loop, I think, is something that we gave up a long time ago. Like just living is what I would say we gave up a long time ago. Sure. We we weren't satisfied with just living. We weirdly enough, we instead of getting rid of the boulder, um, we made the boulder lighter and we maybe made the hill steeper. If that makes any sense in mm-hmm. the analogy. So we added more things you now need to do in the day. That's increasing the height of the hill, but we've made everything that you need to do easier. So the boulder, right. all of the basics lighter. have become trivial essentially. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think the problem with that is like, again, going back to that analogy is, if it takes you a day's worth of time to get the boulder to the top of the hill, you're going to have to let it go so you can go to sleep. But that's fine. You did something all day. And I think there is something psychological within us that doing something is better than doing, quote, nothing. Right. right. Like if you look at often touted, I feel better about myself for getting outside and doing some work, like let's say cutting the grass. Sure. Then had I stayed inside to do something that is objectively more enjoyable to do. Mm-hmm. Like I guess, I guess maybe objectively is not an appropriate word Sub- for that because, yeah. because it's literally my enjoyment. But so subjectively to me more, I would much rather be watching flashing colors on the screen than pushing around this thing in the heat to make my grass shorter. Um, but I feel better for doing the work anyway. Right. Well, and if you look at, at the time, like by the time it, that I need to go to bed, I feel better about what I've done. Yeah. But like, if you look at people talk about depression, mm-hmm. you know, there are ways that have been suggested that you can reduce your depression. Again, also not a psychiatrist, not trying to hand out panaceas here, but um, a lot of things you'll see often is, oh, okay, well, set a very low bar attainable goal to do that day. Like day one, if you've been laying in bed for days depressed, how about day one, just get out of it for a few minutes. Like, go go brush your teeth. That's all you gotta do. Go brush your teeth, comb your hair. And then you can go get back in bed. That's fine. But then the next day, do those things. Now, go outside and just sit. You can just sit in a chair outside. That's fine. You just increase the number of things that you do in a day. That And it's not even that you're increasing. You are increasing the things that you do, but you're also becoming cognizantly aware of every little thing and treating it as a thing. And by contrast to the nothingness that you've been doing, it seems like a big deal. But it starts you on, it starts the ball rolling, you know, in this case, maybe the rock rolling of more and more things. Like the rock gets bigger and bigger so that every foot up the hill you go, it feels more satisfying. I think that the, you know, I don't know. I think that, I think that says a lot about our satisfaction of doing things. Like it's, there, there's, it's psychologically satisfying to do things. And even watching pretty colors on a screen, there's a difference between just watching pretty colors that you've watched before, watching colors that you've not seen in that arrangement before, and interacting with those colors in a way that maybe has a goal in mind. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just different levels to it. But, hmm. But yeah, no, I would be okay with that as far as like a, saying it's just i don't know that that's i I still disagree with the original notion though that like i disagree with fate i disagree with the you know life just being the standard i think that the way you can increase that is by adding more to what it means to live a life although maybe to a point maybe if you increase the goal if you if you make the hill too high you can't get to the top of it every day and maybe that's what contributes to defeatism you know the defeat 
depression. The matter, like there's a point where it doesn't matter how light you make the rock. You just can't walk up the hill in a day, you know, which is a realistic time period that we operate on. We, we condense most things to days because uh, that's when our consciousness breaks. So I don't know. I, I don't like it still. I think that it's a, it's a good enough acknowledgement of a thing that happens, but just like nihilism, I think it's best just to accept that that is how it is in some ways, but also to think about how you can affect that system as well. You know what I mean? Like, for example, with nihilism, you know, there is no meaning to anything. It's like, well, maybe no objective meaning, but you can apply subjective meaning to things. You can reduce the scope of the universe, something way outside of your conception that you can conceive of, really. Bring it to your daily life. You know, like, panic, like, like cures for nihilism are stop caring about things that you can't see and start caring about things that you do more. And you'll find yourself being a lot more happy because you, you're creating, you know, you're creating a world where you can actually see your measurable impacts in it. And that makes you feel like you matter more, you know, even if you don't in the grand scheme, that's fine. But you, you do, I think there, you can do something similar for this is, yeah, it's fine to acknowledge that this is absurd, but you know, don't worry about it. (laughs) Just bring the scope in and care about the variables that you control, not the system that you're within, perhaps. So, but you said there were other responses to absurdism, though. Other proposals besides just this this acceptance? Is that what we're going to talk about? Uh, I don't know that there was a lot more to talk about there. I think the the, the reason I brought that up was to, to say that usually... People who talk about absurdism take up the position that, yeah, that you should set your own goals and, you know, it, the, the verb, the verb rebel or resist sounds, sounds more heroic than I think it's meant to sound. Yeah. Um, but the, like, yep, this is all, what a silly thing we're all doing but I'm having fun. Yeah. Um, so I don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. It, it, it's like someone saying, imagine getting, you know, taking lashes on your back, but you're enjoying it. Would you enjoy it? It's like, well, you told me I was as much as I, me knowing I wouldn't actually enjoy it. Disagree with that. Logically, it's consistent to say I would enjoy it. Right. So Yes. As long as you don't mott and bailey me and say, okay, cool. So you enjoy getting lashes on your back. Now it's like, oh, okay. uh, I didn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say that, but well, I did literally, but in you're changing the framework, you know, mm-hmm. I think that as long as you respect the fact that you're switching between frames of reference, then you're fine. But a lot of people don't, I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe I argue with too many people and that's where I get kind of uppity about it. And I start crossing my arms. Like, mm, I don't like this framing you're putting me in to make me say things that you want me to say. I feel like I'm being manipulated, mm-hmm. you know? Hmm. So what would be, I guess, what's the point, you know? Like, um, are there people that disregard absurdism or, or not disregard it, but say that you shouldn't rebel against absurdism or you shouldn't, have, well, I guess, okay. So if accepting absurdism is to rebel against the cycle right yeah so the the antithesis to absurdism is to claim that life actually does have meaning okay and so of course you'll find that your most common objectors are religious folks Mm. because usually a religion entails an objective meaning of life hey you tricked me into talking about religion again (laughs) (laughs) It's Trojan horse's absurdism. Like the, the the horse opens, it's religion. <laughs> um, I feel like we've had that conversation before, but I don't think it'd be bad to like rehash it, perhaps, mm. in short order. But I don't know. I mean, can you? Okay, what about this? So back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Everything within the bucket has a reason, right? 
everything within the bucket has a cause. It's just the bucket itself doesn't have a cause. Uh-huh. The, the set that contains all set does not contain itself. Right. Right. So that's really what's being argued here by it. I think that's the most, the most acceptable of religions to me, I think would be the ones to say something along the lines of, well, yes, the set of all sets does not contain itself, but it does. But now we're also creating a new set outside that set called God. And he doesn't contain himself or he satisfies this paradox paradox by definition. Right. Even though that's just axiomatic and ergo God exists. Right. It's just a word game. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a word game at that point, but that's the most inoffensive way you could wrap this in a religious wrapper. It's still wrong, but you're just asserting that something is wrong is right. But then leaving everything else the same because realistically it doesn't matter. Right. Um, if say for example you were the most deist of deist of deists you know you would say something along the lines of yes all of the the universe has order in it and even though we don't understand that order right like physics and everything the totality of like physics we haven't created a perfect model yet for everything it does conceptually exist a Mm -hmm. but b it was created by this entity this god but this god could potentially even not be bound by those rules, but they also don't intervene because they're incompatible. So it doesn't matter. Or disinterested or whatever. Or disinterested or whatever, yeah. So it's like, cool. So apparently there's an entity outside the set of all sets that never comes inside the set of all sets. Cool, doesn't matter. But Right, now, literally has no effect on your life at all. Yeah. Right. I think where you start to see problems is when you have this entity, this this thing that exists outside the set of all sets that's that does do things within the set of all sets, which is right. You know, where I begin to question things like let, let let's take the that, puppet master. Yeah. yeah, well, let's take that on as a hypothetical then, right? So, what would that actually look like if it were true? So we have these rules, right? Like if you were to view the universe as a fabric of causes and effects, because there are usually more than one cause for things that happen, you sure. can, you know, there's a ton of vectors pushing against. Well, the I point. mean, if you really think about it, what is a cause and an effect? A cause is just a thing that came before another thing. Sure. Really. And Re- an effect is a thing that comes after a thing. Really. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm trying to put this in the framework of like, okay, we have this, the shape of the universe and all of the things are defined by these rules that we're trying to discover, right? So we figure all that out. If, what's the one of the most simplest things that your God could do? Like imagine if you could condense the universe to a 2D plane, right? Mm-hmm. Like make some assumptions and condense all the variables down to, to a plane. The the guy could touch that 2d plane in any place and have some effect. Right. Right. Um, and because it's not of the 2d plane, it's not considered a cause, right? Cause it exists outside the framework until it, right. Things that it does to appear to come out of nowhere. Yeah. Right. So how does that actually not break physics? Like how does that not break everything when that happens? You know, like for example, it breaks entropy. You know, like if, if the right. God- it, it does break physics as we understand it. Right. I think the thing that you would argue is that, well, the answer is that our theories of physics are incomplete and to have a complete model, you would need to account for God. Well, I don't think you'd actually have to account for the fact that God exists. That's fine. Cause remember he exists outside of physics. Right. But part of your model needs to be, but also God can break the rules at any time. Which also kind of invalidates the rules. Yes, because the entire, like, perhaps the one axiom of science is that the rules don't change. Hmm. There aren't exceptions to the rules. Because the whole goal of science is to figure out the rules. Right. Um, or at least physics, anyway. The whole The whole goal of physics is to figure out what the rules are. And if the rules are constantly changing and being broken, you have no hope of figuring out the rules. Right. And then you can't make sense of anything. Right. Now, obviously, I think even most religious people don't agree with that. They would say that, no, most things are predictable, except when, you know, yeah, the God decides otherwise. <laughs> but still, I feel like this would have a cascading effect. You know what I mean? Like, I just... 
I mean, if you look at this from the entropy perspective, right? So say that the God can manifest things that weren't there before. Mm-hmm. Back when we didn't realize there were things that space was a thing, right? That there were things in space. You know what I mean? Like you right, and I that are... the stars in the sky were not just little holes poked in a dark sheet. Yeah, they're actual like objects that are some that are in a place that in principle you could go touch right but not even that but like between you and me there are just a bunch of things there between you and me we just can't see them right there's a bunch of atoms and molecules floating around floating around invisibly yeah invisibly um but also between each of them is a thing like space time is a thing right yeah the fabric in which they exist exists between them right right so because at least according to our current theory the things the molecules the atoms those are not the fundamental things those are ripples in the fundamental things there are wrinkles in the fabric right so imagine we have a piece of fabric pulled taut right Mm -hmm. and this is because we've normalized for all of the things that exist already in the fabric the moment the God being touches the fabric and creates new things. Like imagine you have a perfectly square piece of fabric or a perfectly round piece of fabric. But yes. then I, I cut a square in it and then put more fabric than was there before. You then can't pull the fabric flat again. Right. Because all the rest of it is still tight. Yeah. So that's my problem is how does that not cause like. Yeah, again, I'm entertaining the fact that God exists, so I know what the answer is going to be, right? Hmm. God just redid the whole fabric. That's fine. <laughs> this is just a thing that they that it can do. You know? Right. But if we move to that, so let's go there, right? So I'm like, okay, so now you have a lump in your fabric because you've pulled the threads here to add more threads. Okay, so say, for example, that God could evenly distrib- figure all this out, do all the calculations it would take to renormalize everything to flat again. Now you don't have a circle anymore, probably, but that's fine, I guess, because the only times that matters is at the borders, and remember, the borders aren't things. Um, but now you're talking about an entity that just reworked all of the space-time and all the things in it to make this thing work. Is there still conscious continuity when he does that? Or not for us. Because our consciousness also exists in a physical space. But if it gets reworked each time, can you even be conscious, really, in that system? You know? Or does that not matter? Am I, I worrying about something that doesn't matter? I think you could probably say it doesn't matter. Like, And we, we talked about this recently off the show, I think. Um, how, like, what is... What is continuity really? Hmm. Can you really detect discontinuity? Right. You can't, I don't think. Right. And and so, like, I, I talked about my experience of being knocked unconscious once upon a time. And, like, the only, the only way that I could tell that there was a discontinuity is because in what felt like an instant for me... I moved way farther than I could have moved in that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the order of a, a few tens of feet, uh, off in some direction. Uh, and, but, but that that's the only way that I could tell. Or like going to sleep. The night seems to pass by in an instant, except for those moments when you're dreaming. And so it all feels like one continuous thing but then you wake up and you're like, wow, that was a lot faster than it felt like. But you didn't really lose continuity. But there was discontinuity. You do lose consciousness when you go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. If if we supposed that messing with the rules broke continuity, you'd still never be able to tell. Ugh. <laughs> I don't know, man. I just feel like one of the issues with engaging in this discussion is, like I said it earlier, just if you assume God exists, then the answer is always going to be, well, because God did it, and 
said so, you know. Like, well, yes. Also, as soon as you accept that paradigm, then you're you are satisfied with non-answers. Yeah. Because it's the ultimate non-answer. Where did it all come from? Well, God. Cool. But is that really any better? Because you're just naming your acceptance at that point. Right. You're giving, you're personifying your acceptance into a different entity than yourself. Right. Right. Um, (laughs) It's like, why are things the way they are? Well, God. Okay. How is that any different than no answer? Or then it just is. You're just renaming it is to God. And then, you know, of course, if there's an, if we personify it, then there's something that there's an entity that we believe we can appeal to. Now, this is an interesting thing, maybe. Say, for example, say there is an effect, though. Like, let's, let's scope this down to an individual psychology, right? If me, the individual, believes that it just is, and the set of all sets does not contain itself, that's fine. I just accept that. And then just go on about my life. Mm-hmm. I'll behave no differently because I'm I'm just accepting the status quo. There's no delta, right? I just know a thing now that I've always kind of intuited, and it's fine. I'm just accepting it, right? Mm-hmm. But if you accept the God paradigm, now you're adding a bunch of variables in that you pretend can change, and I think this leads to very unpredictable behavior in a person. Um, I think in some, it manifests in a positive way. So those who have a hard time accepting the initial paradigm, if they accept the God paradigm, they can use it to satisfy certain things that would prevent them from doing the things they wanted to do in, in the past. So good example I, 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 when I first kind of broke from religion and had my angry, angsty atheist phase, um, I entertained this idea that, hmm, if you need a God to tell you to be good, then you would be the worst people in the absence Right, you of were God. never a good person. You yeah. were never a good person. And in my eyes, you're, you still aren't, you know, because, and this is back when I also didn't have my, you know, epistemology, epistemology straight on this is, Oh, you're a bad person. But what if them manifesting religion is their way of coercing themselves into being good people? Is that valueless? Or is it just a step along the way? You know? Like, is it a good thing? Like, you know, if we were to, if we were to, you know, look at religion and say, is religion good? Like, that's a question you hear a lot. Like, religion has done more good for the world than evil or bad moral good or bad like and weirdly enough when i have these conversations it's amazing how christians or not just christians but it's amazing how religious people abandon their moral standards for mine then try to use their religion as being good in my moral framework right Mm -hmm. um so like i believe that morality is just a product byproduct of evolution and social creatures to improve their cooperation and i mean like we right in a nutshell that's not that's that's a very i'm abridging a lot here i guess but it is statistically more viable for you to cooperate with others than to be hostile right and behaviors that lead to better cooperation we call morally good and those that aren't we call morally bad right you could just as well replace moral and immoral with social and antisocial mm-hmm because that's exactly. really kind of what we mean. Right. Because morals kind of don't matter when there aren't other people around. Right. Even though it's hard for us to conceptualize a world in total loneliness. Like forever loneliness. And we also have this weird habit of personifying ourselves and thinking of ourselves. Which weirdly puts us in two places at once, kind of. Like, I am me all the time, right? But mm-hmm. when I think of myself... Am I thinking about me in the current state or am I thinking about me? No, you're thinking about like an abstract you. Yeah. yeah. So now there's two of us in my mind. You know, like people say, I'm talking to myself. Right. They're personifying themselves into a secondary abstract that they then converse with. 
which is strange to think that that we do that yes and we do this all the time when we're alone we also do the same thing we think about ourselves at different points in time sometimes like there's right. been some that's future me's problem mm-hmm. is a thing that i've heard said a lot and have said to myself a time or two mm-hmm. same or um you see someone else that made a decision that you contemplated but decided against and you think about man that could have been me if i you know you travel back in time make a different decision and then make a bunch of assumptions as to how you got there but you are essentially what you're doing is mapping that other person your perception of the other person onto yourself and right. then imagining how you feel about that which is also kind of how sympathy works or empathy yes is i'm going to take your circumstance map it onto my abstract self and think hmm I care about this abstract person more than I care about all other physical actual people because it represents it's it's the meta version of me. Right. How would I feel in that person's position even though by virtue of you not being in that person's position, we can conclude it is physically impossible for you to be in that person's position. You can you will never be that person. True. But what's weird though is but we- the, the the point of the mental exercise is I could end up in a similar situation to that person. That's what you really mean. Is it though? Or am I... Okay, hear me out on this one. So, Well, it depends on why. Eh. It depends on why you think that person is in that situation. I, I don't know that it does, mm. I think. So let me take like the, your stereotypical homeless man, for example. Okay. So if I look at the homeless man, I say, man, if I were homeless and then my brain gets started concocting a me that's homeless you know applying that to the abstract ego you know right um or clone of my ego the the weird thing about this shadow version of myself that i've created that i'm now that i can change and apply things external to that makes me feel things right i don't actually feel anything for anyone else i only feel for my abstract self but I can manipulate my abstract self using other people as like a template. As a template. I, hmm. Yes. I'm imagining homeless me. Boy, that sucks. Um, and I feel bad for homeless me. And then I stop thinking about homeless me and look at you and, and I still feel bad. Right. And that changes my behavior. And that is how you feel bad for other people. Yeah. You don't. You feel bad for your abstract self. But you look at the template. You you're smart enough to look you're at where mirroring. the template came from. Yeah, yeah, you're mentally mirroring somebody else. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Yes. Hmm. So how you manipulate abstract me is how you guide your own behavior, which is weird because you eventually, if you are successful, look. So like look at this from a goal chasing perspective, if you conceptualize an abstract you that you are happy with that's motivating to yourself you then hope to take abstract you and map it back down to you at some point and then now the new you makes a new abstract you that it wants to be different now it's weird think about that way you're essentially creating a shadow clone of yourself that you want to like become and map back to yourself that's weird think about so If you accept that, so back to the thing before, you know, pop that off the stack and go back down to the whole God thing. I feel like the God thing breaks that process a little bit because now you you don't care about abstract you as much, maybe. But you still do, right? Because this is a thing that humans do. But what you're saying essentially now is that I can't manipulate abstract me. It's God doing it. But you're still manipulating abstract you, but the template now is not a person. It's something you've personified because God gets personified all the time. Sure. You know, every, everything in religious texts get personified in some way, shape or form. Even though if you read the descriptions, like if you've read the description of biblical angels before. Yes. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. Nightmare fuel. Cthulhu monsters of God. These things. Right. But they're good. But, but they're good. Sure. But terrifying. Yes. <laughs> but later on, we you know, we made them look like people. Right. But with wings. Because they gotta still gotta be able to fly. That's the differentiating factor. Well, yes, and be and be anatomically different from people because they're different. Yeah. Right. Hmm. To show that these are otherworldly creatures. Otherworldly. How otherworldly 
a human with wings, with bird wings. <laughs> oh, talk about absurd. Uh, <laughs> speaking of absurd things, tying it back to the main topic. <laughs> but, That's another funny thing. How uncreative we are. Let's think of a creature from another world. Okay, well, it's got the body of a person and the wings of a bird. <laughs> the wings of a Both bird. of these things exist in our world. <laughs> Well, yeah, and even mythical creatures, right? right um, like, like centaurs. Right. It's got the body... The torso of a man, but the... But also the torso and legs of a horse. Yeah. I'm beginning to think of all kinds of inconsistencies here. Why is it that in some places... No, no, in that case you do... Okay, so... I think in that case it's... Okay, so the... the you've got the torso of a man. It does technically have the torso of a horse but that's because how would you make that work otherwise right without also taking away the human's arms ah that tells you a lot about how the ancient greeks probably looked at arms and legs as being different appendages right maybe legs are legs arms are arms even though they're all kind of legs right you think about it arms are just yeah, specialized just, legs arms are shorter legs with specialized feet Unless you're an ape, in which case all your legs are arms, <laughs> right? With specialized which, yeah, that hands. really that really points out the the blurred lines between <laughs> legs and arms when you start looking at other apes where they have what? long toes. You mean hands? Yes, <laughs> on their ha- hands at the bottom of their legs. Yeah, you mean hands at the bottom of their bottom arms, right? That aren't legs. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh. I don't know. What a silly place we live in. <laughs> what, a, what a silly thing that we've done. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so another thing. I'm beginning really now to concern myself with, like, why the biblical creatures were the way they were. Like, Bible-accurate angels. So let's let's look at this, right? So I'm going to pull this up because I'm curious now. It's been a while since we did a good, good tangent episode. Sure. <laughs> Welcome to the tangents. We're just going to call this one absurdity. Like, right. Not absurdism. All right. So I don't know how accurate the source is. It's fine. Um, so let's take... Apparently there's different types of angels. I, rem- I forgot about that too. Um, there's like cherubim and seraphim and all these other kind of yes, different... and other words that are supposed to sound uh, cool, I guess. Okay, so let's start with cherubim, or cherub. The Bible describes these being as animal-human hybrids tasked with guarding the Garden of Eden against humankind. Um, so they're recorded as having four faces, that of a lion, an ox, an eagle, and a human. They have straight legs. Okay. Cool. Four wings and bull hooves for feet that gleam like polished brass. One set of wings cover their body, and the other is used for flight. Then how do you know what its legs are if the wings cover them? Okay. God told me. God said so. Freaking weird. Right. Um, there's the Malachim. Let's see. Um, the Messengers. Okay. Oh, and apparently they're a third in the rank of four. Apparently they're ranked in. Of course they are. Everything is ranked. Reason. Um, uh, the Malachim looked like human beings. That's it. They just look like people. Cool. No wings. That's some fabrication that came later. I guess it's because all the other ones have wings. They thought that these should too, but these are just people-looking things. Great. Okay, so this is the to me. Okay, the first one was weird, but those seraphim are the ones that are really weird to me. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, what do these actually look like, though? Okay, the prophet Isaiah describes them as having six wings, two of which are for flying, while the rest are used to cover its head. Two are used to cover the head, two are used to cover the feet. And there's more than that. They're covered in eyeballs, too. Yeah, for for reasons. For reasons, yeah. And then this one I had not heard of, the Ophanim, the wheels the most bizarre um the bible describes them as being made out of interlocking golden wheels with each wheel's exterior covered with multiple eyes they move by floating themselves in the sky 
as the highest in the they're they're the they're like the top angels and there's no exact Proof historical origin are um... literally like there's <laughs> there's no exact historical origin for these um oh and people think this was ufo sightings cool oh great <laughs> or the product of uh psychedelic substances okay so that, that seems more that likely. explains more things do you think that people okay so i don't watch a ton of joe rogan for example but there is a nice compilation of the number of times where he asked people if they have tried dmt for mm-hmm. example um apparently there is this thing that people experience when they take dmt where they all see something similar do you think that they actually see something similar or is that like a coerced behavior where you're told you're going to see something and so when you take a substance that cranks your brain into overdrive, you will see it? It could be that. It, it could be that you are coerced into seeing it because, yeah, you, you've got it in your head that you're supposed to see this thing and then it happens. It's the, the self-fulfilling thing. Or it could also be, I uh, I forget the name of this phenomenon, but it, hap- it, it, it happens in... Uh, the the wilder sort of churches where like you'll have people who report of like mm, they they might call them well okay they, they will have like some sort of collective supernatural experience uh where they saw a thing happen you know you'll hear stories of like oh someone you know aged decades in a matter of seconds or something like that and they'll all report these things mm-hmm. um and you're like and they and they use these as as convincing stories. It's like, look how how could like group hallucinations don't exist, um, and you know, so and all these people are reporting the same thing. But actually, under scrutiny, they all saw different things. But then they get to talking to one another, and someone says, "Oh, I saw it happen this way," and then that person trying to to reconcile it with what they saw said, "Yeah, I also saw that," and then your your own memory of the thing gets overwritten with the narrative Mm. like everyone is changing everyone in the group changes one another's memories until they finally converge on a story that they agree on and then that actually is what they remember which is fascinating and terrifying um i mean i guess that also explains why the stock market is the way it is i mean if enough people believe that this thing is good and will make money it will make money weird how that works right i think that's that works a little differently but yeah sure yeah we're not rewriting a memory but it's like a contagious feeling or but yeah like if you take a drug and you see a bunch of weird stuff and someone says "Ooh, did you see this i could easily see that sort of coercing your memory into think yeah maybe i did see something like that maybe that's what that thing was yeah and then you just get on board with the narrative yeah what would be interesting is to perform an experiment when which you take a bunch of people who have, you'd have to make sure they've never heard of it before which also they couldn't actually tell you if they've never heard of it before because you don't know what all you've actually heard before right that's the end. you'd have to you'd have yeah they'd have to do it first then you interview them about what they experienced. Then you interview them about the thing that everyone says they experience. Yes. But yeah, you can't let them in on the thing that you're trying to do in advance or you will guarantee you will contaminate the experiment. Yeah. Right. Well, I think the better way to do it is to you, you interview them before they talk to anybody else. They come out of their state. They're in isolation. They sober up. And then you interview them and say, okay, in your own words, explain to me what you saw. And then record what they said. Then you put them back in general population, essentially, and you let them talk to each other for a little bit. Right. That's the other the other part of it. Yeah. Let the participants talk amongst themselves then about let, their experience. Yep. Then you interview them immediately after they speak with each other again. And then you wait like six months and interview them about it again and see how the story changed with time. Like, I would imagine that if you inter- like if you interview them about what they saw, turn around, let them loose then let them talk to each other and then interview them immediately after they're going to have some resistance to adopting the new narrative because they've already had to construct it to tell you what they saw right 
Um, people have this habit of not wanting to change their, not wanting to consciously change their story. So they'll, they'll, I don't know, be a little more active about trying to recall things that they told you. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be better actually to have them write it down, like in the absence of another person. Cause you know, if it's private, it's maybe treated a little differently. That'd be another variable you could probably use to test along the lines of test your experiment by having them write things instead of talking to an interview or have them record an audio recording of it. But even then, yeah, I think an audio recording would be better because writing it, you're still having to form it into a narrative, mm-hmm. right? You, you're, that's an interesting thing. You have to think more when you write than when you just, when you speak, because you have to, you're in the process of editing your grammar to be correct on page you would literally change what you're saying yeah yeah that's weird yeah because we feel like we need to be more proper 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 when writing yes the prophet proffer of course <laughs> so anyway where are we going with this oh, i'm just jumping from tangents right now okay because i figured we were just going to be a tangent episode but well i think uh we've hit our our tangent uh quota Oh, this is the stack overflowing? Yes. Okay. Philosophers. Philosophers. If you like the music in this episode, please check out Jippy on Bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com. Philosophers is supported by viewers like you. If there's a topic you'd like us to discuss, or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future, please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description, or in the comments below. Thank you for listening.